You're trying to win these people to an idea of proletarian international unity. And the way they did that was by saying, you know what, we're going to try and uplift your local languages. Those mosques and, uh, and uh, things that were torn down in the past, we're going to help you build them up. The revolution showed them that the working class and the peasants can not only overthrow an autocratic government, but most importantly, create a government in their own image. Socialist Ideas in Action. I'm Josh Frame, Spring member and co-host of the Spring Radio podcast. In today's episode, Revolution. We're bringing you a talk from Spring members Dina Nawaz and Peter Hogarth that was originally recorded on October 14th, 2023 as part of Spring's Red October conference. The talk centers around the Russian Revolution of 1917 and its impact not only on the Russian working class, but on people facing oppression at the hands of the ruling class around the world, from India to Peru, and from 1917 to today. Revolutions, more than anything, mark a period of possibility. They're a time when real progress can be made in the fights against capitalism, imperialism, racism, and all the other interconnected isms that oppress working people around the world. My name is Dina, my pronouns are she, her. I'm a member of Spring, and I think in talking in, during this session, which may sound like a history lesson, but it's not, what I'd really like to talk about today is the spirit of a revolution. Um, I did not grow up here. I grew up in the Middle East, to, born to parents who were displaced twice by two bloody partition, um, have lost family and many parts of my family to the Iran-Iraq war. So a history of revolution is what I've ever been familiar with, that you need to fight, and I've only ever known the, the hand of an imperial power and what it does to people. So today's talk is going to be about revolution and how revolution may look like a single event to those who learn about it after, but it's never experienced that way. Revolutions are deeply unsettling times in history, but they're also periods of great creativity and energy. And to claim that moment as a revolution is to claim it for human action. Placing the October Revolution in its historical context and in the wider context of a world gripped with war, economic crises, climate meltdown, shows us what is possible when workers unite against a system of oppression that only serves the ambitions of a few. The immediate spark of the 1917 Russian Revolution was in February. So before we even start talking about October, I'll start talking about February, where the spark for the revolution came from everyday women workers. Women were standing in lines for bread for eight hours a day. So on International Women's Day, which was 23rd of February, women left the textile factories that they were working in, stopped the trams, went on a strike, and urged male workers in factories to come join them. And as they did, and as the women took the lead, the rest is history as we know. And soon many joined to oppose a government of the bourgeoisie that was around at the time, supporting an imperial war. Sound familiar to what's happening right now? The workers were ahead of the Bolshevik party, as you know. And in many ways, everyday workers, women shaped the Bolshevik party as much as the party shaped the revolution. 
There are many lessons, of course, to be learned from the Bolshevik party and the organizing efforts leading up to October 1917, which is extremely important right now. Some of the ingredients that, of course, Peter will be talking about more in depth is the high level of debate that the party had tolerated over many years, the high level of agreement on general politics and a wide knowledge of the Marxist tradition. Equally important, at every available opportunity, they rooted themselves in the working class, trained their members, and they never stood aloof from the struggle and the consciousness of the time. And most importantly, the Bolshevik party had to be a new type of organization, extremely disciplined, centralized and armed with a strong theory of capitalism, imperialism, and socialism. A broad movement was built between February and October, as I mentioned, even before the October Revolution happened, to oppose imperial war and capitalism, leading to the victory we saw, however short-lived, in October 1917. In a few hectic years, women won the vote, Divorce was legalized, there were state-run nurseries, laundries, it, Russia became the first country to legalize abortion, contraception, land was being given back to peasants, um, decent working conditions were in place, among many other victories that were hard won by workers at the time. At the junction we face today, and the reason we're talking about 1917 and the history of it as we wrap up today, is because with worsening climate crisis, ongoing wars, imperialism, oppression of the working class, stifling of unions, rampant racism, and castrated political rights, we need to not imitate the outcome of the Russian Revolution, but really take inspiration from the energy, organization, and the optimism of the revolutionaries from the early days. The history of the October Revolution shows us that the workers' movement of today still has a powerful weapon in its armory. And in this session, we will reflect on the unprecedented political, sexual, economic liberation and the national risings and freedoms that the people experienced in the beginning of the October Revolution. And these rights and freedoms are not dreams of the past. They are still within our reach and we still ought to fight for them. The October Revolution and many revolutions that came after it that has defined my life may seem like something of the past, but the spirit and the energy of the revolution is our future and our present. And in this talk, we will try to make the case that the spirit of the energy and the energy of the revolution continues to inspire and live on. And I'm going to pass it to Peter to walk us through what happened before we come back to today. Thanks a million, Dina. Um, yeah, so as uh, Dina was mentioning, the Russian Revolution is this sort of defining world event, right? And it's one of these things that I think it's not necessary that everyone knows everything about the Russian Revolution, right? But why, for instance, should we care so much about it? And now there's a million different reasons that we could go into, I think, as socialists about why we should. But the specific one we're going to try and focus on today is that aspect of national liberation. Obviously, um, the topic of national liberation is looms quite large uh, right now, what with world events and stuff like that. And the Bolsheviks, uh, the, the party that sort of ended up winning the revolution in 1917, I think has a lot to teach us um, and the lessons that they put forward there and sort of the hard um, ideas that came out of that can inform a lot of how we approach stuff today. So I'm just going to start with a quick run through of 1917 um, and, and think about why, why did it happen in Russia? When you're, you're looking at your textbook Marx, that's probably not the place you think it's going to happen, right? It doesn't have the most developed working class. It's mostly rural, a huge land mass, a small minority of the working class exists in a few big cities. Um, but this is the kind of thing that 
Leon Trotsky, one of the leading revolutionaries of that time, wrote about later is this combined and uneven development that exists in, existed in Russia, where you've got someone, you know, farming for subsistence, pushing along a wheelbarrow or whatever, or an ox, next to a huge giant metal factory or textile factories. This is the thing where these, um, you know, what later became called third world countries, what might now be called global south countries, can become places where revolution can actually take, uh, take place ahead of your more industrialized countries. And the reason being is that you have that combination of fighting for basic democratic reforms that don't exist, combining with basic economic demands inside these um, factories and stuff like that that are incredibly important to global capitalism, but are, you know, maybe a small minority of the population. But that small minority of the population, that working class, because of their strategic position internationally and in the country, can lead a revolution. And those are sort of the combination of objective and subjective factors that exist to make 1917 what it is. Another important um, thing that looms large for 1917 is 1905, what many called the dress rehearsal for 1917. They almost had a successful, or they had a revolution in 1905. It was brutally suppressed. It started over, um, I think, demands around the, the length of the working day, but quickly spilled in, again, we're talking about the way these demands can do that, into demands for the end of the autocracy, the end of the czar. It was brutally repressed. I think after that, after the 1905 revolution failed, 15,000 workers or something like that were executed. Now that is a lesson that looms large for the Russian working class, that if you make a half revolution, you know what happens, right? And that's the, the brutal punishment of the czar. So when 1917 comes, you know, that informs how people react. Um, as Dina was saying, uh, February 23rd is sort of when it really kicks off. It was International Women's Day. Now with the war, that meant that there was tons more women out of the home and into the factories, right? Lots of guys are fighting in the war, dying, all this type of stuff. It's like 130,000 women uh, joined the workforce. And some of them, there's even more in metal than in textile factories at the time. But the textile factory workers kick it off. They were just talking about bread, you know, prices around bread. We need more money, etc. Um, those chants are quickly crowded out by chants of down with the autocracy and the war. Right? And so this is the way in which the war looms large and is one of the objective factors that influences the way it's happening because it creates a crisis for the working class who are dying in mass numbers, having a terrible time. And then it also creates a crisis for the ruling class um, where they're looking for a way out too, right? Um, after, after a few days of this uh, intense protest, soldiers who are in the cities being trained to eventually go to the front lines and face, you know, begin to rebel too. And quickly, um, three centuries of the Romanov rule come to an end when the Tsar, you know, abdicates. What comes in its place, now this is where we see, so that's February 1917. And the two big months they talk about, February and October. So now we talk about on the way to October. Uh, you face, what, what the Tsar is replaced with is something that come, becomes known as dual power. You've got this provisional government that's um, made up of, you know, it's sort of an ad hoc formation of, you know, your usual large landowners, wealthy capitalists, there was a prince in there. But then they also incorporated sort of radical lawyers and some people from like the socialist revolutionary parties, because you know how it is, and we've seen this in other things. Egypt comes to mind where a revolution happens and of course the people that are kicked out, they wanna, they wanna look good to the people that, that are there. So people are demanding everything from them and knowing that the mood in the streets and stuff like that and the factories is not one that'll let them 
crush the revolution or just do what they want, they're promising a lot and hoping, hoping that this, this revolution stuff sort of dies down. But of course, this dual power is untenable because um, on the one hand, the one the provisional government wants to maintain you know stuff for the landowners stuff for the capitalist class and on the other hand the soviets are the most the sorry i didn't talk about that the soviets are the other form of power you've got the provisional government and you've got the soviets which are workers councils started as sort of strike committees they make their first appearance in 1905 and they're back again and they are responses of like we're going to make strike committees what do we do um, you know we have if this is our this is this is our factory we probably, there's a bunch of different tendencies. There's an anarchist there, there's a Menshevik there, there's a conservative sort of worker here, you know, whatever, he's a Bolshevik. And you're arguing for who's gonna represent them at this much bigger council. And that becomes this sort of direct form of democracy. That's, you know, if I elect him, if he doesn't do what we like, we can recall him, right? And send someone new. And so it becomes the whole, the, a, new form of, a new form of government that are both, you know, competing. The Soviet is so powerful because it represents all these workers that they are issuing things where it's like, listen, provisional government, you can do what you want, but we want to have vetoes on what the military says. We want to have vetoes on what the provisional government says. So they're exercising the real de facto power, whereas the provisional government is still humming along. Now, I'm going to have to keep going quickly because that's a lot to cover, but 1917 moves on. Most people in the Soviets still support the provisional government. You know how it is. We know workers around us, right? Like, you go up to them and say, do you want something radically different? Like, well, no, I just want you know, the buses to run on time and I want, you know, prices lower, right? right? But as 1917 goes on, it becomes more and more clear that things can't continue this way. Um, there's a real turning point in sort of April when uh, Lenin, uh, who was the exiled leader from the Bolsheviks, comes back to uh, Russia as because there's like sort of an amnesty, all these people that were kicked out can come back. He comes back and he's making the argument within his party and without that the only way to um, have peace, land, bread, so land to the peasants, bread for people, you know, good money and good uh, prices, and peace and the, and the war is for all power to the Soviets. And they're in a minority in that. He wins his party to it, but they're in a minority in that amongst the whole, you know, working class and country. But they say, like, we have to sort of patiently explain. And this is where the subjective um, influence of the Bolsheviks meets up with the objective reality of what's happening around them. The provisional government is still trying to do stuff the old way and they end up committing to the war more. This ends up with soldiers getting pissed off and breaking out in fights. A lot of almost premature sort of insurrections because people are pissed off, right? Soviets are rising up, sailors are, are getting mad, you know, all this type of stuff. And uh, anyway, th what, what happens then is that the events of of what's going on confirm what the Bolsheviks have been saying in that the only way we're going to get out of this, the only way we're going to stop our, our boys from being sent off to be killed is by taking this thing over ourselves. And so it becomes almost a foregone conclusion in that way in that so many people, like the power is so um, strong for the Soviets and so many people are one to this idea that actually taking power in that second revolution is like near bloodless because every you know we're in charge of it I, you you're the train conductor and you and your people say we're not moving the trains you know you run the radio station we're not going to we're not going to put anything out for you you know and you occupy a few things including the winter palace and all of a sudden the bolsheviks who are sorry the reason that they say the bolsheviks take power is because they have won a majority in those soviets right 
their arguments have have won the day in that in that people have, are like okay now I'm going to elect we're electing a majority of Bolsheviks because we like what they're saying and they've got a vision for what we can do and because of that then they take power now there's lots of other stuff we can go into but I just want to spend the last bunch of minutes I have talking about what does that mean for for the country and what we're talking about national liberation right as Dina mentioned it meant changing things in many ways for all types of minority minorities and oppressed people right you gave the example of all the amazing things that happened to women. It becomes the Russia become or what you know whatever it is Russia after the revolution becomes the most free society you can imagine in terms of women. Homosexuality is officially legalized. Divorce on demand. Um, there's no longer rules against, for instance, adultery. You know things that kept women um, oppressed and stuff like that and tied to their husband. Um, equal pay is in the mix and all that type of stuff. Uh, there's again the laundries and daycares and things like that. Things that open women up to public life that absolutely change the equation around you know equality, right? The same things sort of happened for Jewish people too, in that many of the leading Bolsheviks were Jewish people, right? And so people going through the experience of a revolution have the um, experience of throwing off the muck of ages, this this you know racism and all this ism that we're all embedded in all the time, because to actually overthrow the czar, to actually take power, you have to work with, let's say, your Muslim brother or sister or whatever. You have to unite with Jewish workers. All of a sudden, you know, women workers are essential to, you know, this project that you're doing that's much bigger than yourself, right? And so anyway, that is what's happening sort of right there. But then the same kind of things happen, um, that same kind of approach of equality and democracy and stuff like that is extended to all of these sort of um, peoples of the former Russian Empire. Now at the time when Russia's Tsar was toppled, the revolution, um, the empire had a population that was 43% Russian and 50% non-Russian, right? Now as they're, the, these people, um, these like oppressed national minorities that have been like trapped within this Russian Empire, like you're in the Russian Empire, do you know, kick up to, kick up to the Tsar, you know, that kind of stuff. Those people, um, actually ended up being essential to the revolution too because their fights start breaking out too. They're inspired by the revolution going on here. That kicks off fights over here and, our, and, um, and uh, Lenin and the Bolsheviks appeal to those people too. They're like, we want your freedom. Uh, as if, if, we top, if we take power, we are going to recognize you know, the people of Ukraine, the people of Finland, the people of you know, all the different stands that you, know, you can think of in the, in the former Russian Empire. And the way that they're greeted, like I'll tell you the, the approach that he takes that, that the party takes is that, um, I should say it here, so their policy and relationships with the oppressed national minorities was based on voluntary cooperation, meaning uh, placing leadership in the hands of local locals and kicking Russian colonizers out of territories while systematically rooting out Russian chauvinism within the party and in the government. Because of course those, those those ideas still loom large, right? People are still going to have racist ideas, you know, these type of things, right? And it's not going to be an instant thing, but working to do that. And then, so the perspective was starting from the goal of consciousness, or sorry, conscious and voluntary unity of workers of different nations. Lenin and the Bolsheviks arrived at the need for workers and oppressed nations to defend national rights for the oppressed. But he didn't elevate the national rights to like a historical principle, like everyone must be an independent nation, but rather they were subordinate to and in, in dialectical you know relationship with 
the need for national workers' unity, where you're not forcing them to be in alliance with them, but you're trying to win these people to an idea of proletarian international unity. And the way they did that was by saying, you know what, we're going to try and uplift your local languages. Those mosques and, uh, and uh, things that were torn down in the past, we're going to help you build them up. You can have your local um, institutions, but we're going to try and Bolshevize those as well by providing opportunities for education, literacy in your own language, um, and, get, and empowering people to see, the, you know, to see the benefits of joining this sort of socialist federation rather than forcing them to as they were forced under the czar. And so what that meant is that you had all these autonomous regions and republics popping up, but you also had Jewish and Muslim uh, socialist parties forming and allying themselves to um, this project. Um, now, the things that happened after, because that is certainly not the history that we remember, I think, in like up to like 91 of like, wait a minute, aren't those all parts of the USSR, right? And like, wasn't that a weird relationship? Okay, that's something to be talked about later, which we certainly can, but I just wanted to get across sort of the ways in which revolution opened up these ideas and allowed for a blossoming of national liberations and languages and things like that that were suppressed under the uh, former, uh, former rule. And then that gives us an idea about how we can approach things like national liberation struggles in relation to socialism and what that means, you know what I mean? Thanks, Peter. That was, and again, there's so much that we can cover, but we'll come back to conversations. But I guess what really strike, at least struck me when I was doing learning about it is sort of a lot of the liberties and the freedoms that were won in the immediate hectic years after the revolution are things we are still fighting for, still things we are still demanding, and things that feel so far away from where we are today. I'll pick up exactly where Peter uh, stopped, but what I will focus on is the legacy of the 1917 revolution on global anti-imperial movements and how it has inspired other revolutions that are still ongoing. Again, one of Lenin's policy of many that were there after 1917 was sort of facilitating wide-ranging territorial autonomy and political independence for everyone that was oppressed by the Tsarist regime. And this was, of course, took the form of land being taken back from Russian colonialists and being returned to native peoples. Refugees that were displaced by Tsarist deporta deportations and repression were given a genuine choice to return back and return home. And the remnants of Russian colonial out were politically disenfranchised. Again, these were movements that were inspiring and striking a chord with people, non-Russians who were who've been under the thumbs of colonialists for a very long time. And I guess I I start here because I think it's really important to acknowledge that when in those early days when non-Russian workers sort of rallied against the Bolshevik flag. There are a lot of detractors and a lot of critiques of this moment that say that they were manipulated, that they just chose the lesser of two evils. But in saying that, we first take a very paternalistic approach to understanding workers, and these are not approaches that are un unfamiliar right now. We take these approaches all the time about describing the working class, that they're either being manipulated, they're either being driven by agenda and ideology they don't understand. But at the time in 1917, a lot of them rallied behind the Bolshevik flag because it offered them real and positive options and alternatives to racism and colonialism at the time. And that's why they rallied behind an anti-imperialist and anti-oppression position. The marks of the October Revolution remained in what was referred to at the time the Third World, and we saw this from Cuba to Vietnam, from China to South Africa. And the movement appealed to people because 
socialism was the decisive enemy of imperialism. And that's how it was experienced. It gave people the confidence they needed to overthrow colonial regimes in their, own, in their home countries, but also challenge them in Europe. The revolution showed them that the working class and the peasants can not only overthrow an autocratic government, but most importantly, create a government in their own image, which became the rallying cry at the time. One example of many that I'll be providing is from 1945 when Ho Chi Minh declared freedom for Vietnam. He proclaimed, we are free and we will never again be humiliated. And that is the sound of confidence and freedom coming from someone who, when was a, he was a young person, read the communist thesis and wept and felt the experience of the Russian Revolution as a guide for what could be possible for Vietnam against such terrible forces. And similarly, if it wasn't for the class demands from the USSR, the Indian National Congress, led by Nehru, would have never adopted the demands of the peasantry in 1919. And also, um, there are many instances where Jawaharlal Nehru, who became the first prime minister of India after um, they gained independence from, the, from Britain, was deeply influenced by the example of Lenin in pushing for the peasants who work the land to be given land title and not pay rent but pay taxes. And again, the relationship between and the inspiration that India drew from Russia is one is noteworthy because both Russia and India had similar conditions where they were agricultural countries with high levels of poverty and illiteracy. And that's what makes the 1917 re revolutions such a inspirational moment for countries fighting colonial forces within their own, uh, in their own context. However, the important lesson to be drawn from this time and the revolutions that followed was that the communist struggle had to be with the consciousness of the people at the time. It couldn't be imposed and it couldn't be ahead of the consciousness of the working class. Um, and in many ways, as many have said, this means holding communist values and lessons from Red October close, but not too far removed from the common sense of the people in their own context. There was no communist booklet, and there still isn't one that answers all the questions for radicals in anti-colonial movements, as we've heard throughout the day where there are different strategies and tactics, and there isn't a, a book that guides us and that tells us what is appropriate. Revolutionaries like all of us here need to throw ourselves into struggles and find our own answers like many have done before us and continue to do at this moment. Some succeed and not others, but the revolution carries on. The other example in talking about how revolution can be molded and heroically created in your own experiences and in different colonial struggles in the image of their own realities is in the instance of Peru where Jose Carlos Matagüe, a prominent Marxist thinker, was writing in 1928 that socialism in America cannot be a trace and copy of what happened in Russia, but it had to be a heroic creation. And, it's, and heroic creation is something that I've been thinking a lot about and drawing inspiration from, is how it encompasses an act of bringing together people's own reality in their own languages, in their own cultural context, and then bringing their own revolution to life um, heroically and boldly and, in, uh, and unapologetically. In Peru in 1920s, this meant that taking into account the insurgent mobilization of indigenous rural communities that were already challenging the power of large landowners. So peasant unity in Peru had to be inclusive of indigenous communities within their own framework. And that goes on to show that there cannot be a reproduction or a copy and paste of the Russian Revolution. And similarly, what happens when there is such an attempt to impose a, a, a socialist version onto a people's struggle is what we often see in the case of India, which is quite unique and one that feels close to my experience of 
being in an Indian diasporic community and in the tradition of revolution. The presence of strong caste and religious majoritarianism in India, both in pre-colonial and post-colonial states, has showed us that caste oppression cannot be fought along caste lines. They have to be fought with class unity and with a unified class organization that also understands the unique role of caste in India. And the failure to do so has created many socialist revolutions that, did not, that looked at the working class as unmarked bodies as if they did not have unique experiences of ca class, caste as well as race and gender as well. And thus, a mechani mechanical understanding of class is not sufficient and often unsuccessful because the working class is made up of people experiencing deep social hierarchies and racial indignity and how we can bring those experiences to our socialist struggle. To sum it up, I know there was a great book that Valerie put up on the table. Um, it's the one by Vijay Prasad. Um, and Vijay Prasad writes that our world into the USSR did not start with 1917, and which is exactly where I started today. It started with our own experiences of imperialism, of capitalism, and of oppression. We looked at Moscow as a distant cousin and not as a parent. Of course, I think this talk wouldn't be complete if I didn't also mention a bit about the Cold War interpretation of what happened. Um, to the Russian Revolution and the promise and the liberties that were initially experienced, and of course all of that changed. But as Dave Sherry posits, that no one should blame the revolution and the spirit and the energy for the abomination it became. The Bolsheviks had to survive three years of civil war. Uh, the civil war had reduced the industry to rubble, the working class base was disintegrated, there was increased bureaucracy, and um, a number of different forces had led to the complete disintegration of the working class in um, Russia, and also Stalinism and Stalin bureaucracy increased as well. Uh, while Trotsky fought hard against Stalin from 1923 onwards, uh, the struggle delayed Stalin's rise to power until 28 but it didn't stop what had happened. And the reason that I bring this up very briefly, and this warrants a lot of conversation, is that there is often an interpretation and almost an inevitability posed by the critiques of the, uh, of the Russian Revolution is that Lenin led to Stalin and all of the horrors that came after. This distracts from the victories and what was possible and the memory and the legacy and the real success of the October Revolution is because the unprecedented, unprecedented political freedoms and all the liberties we've discussed in the past 20 minutes or so um, are still within our reach today. And to take that out of its context and interpret it in, a co in simply a removed Cold War interpretation takes away from that. I'll end now. Uh, we're also just bringing all of this back to today. Um, I think there's been a sentiment that all of this has to be accessible. This cannot just be something we do um, when we have time to read about it or something that we discuss in university. This has to be accessible to our time right now. Today we stand in the midst of increasing forms of exploitation. We've talked about it all day. Uh, we are living in the aftermath of a public health crisis that continues to devastate people and assured us that whose work and labor is valuable and whose bodies are disposable. Uh, we see a rise in far-right ideology of hate, emboldening transphobic and racist attacks on the working class. We see systematic denial of human rights of refugees as well as persistent imperial foreign policy that has supported and continues to embolden the occupation of Palestine. Although different in characters, these factors form a backdrop as grim and as terrifying as the world that in which the Russian Revolution was born. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to end on is something maybe a bit more hopeful. Um, so I'll get to that part, um, is that 
the people who made the October Revolution lived in impossible, what felt like impossible times as we do now, and they had no real model or pathway when those women stepped out of their factories. But taken together, these events we see today and that we saw at the time uh, made, did, not, did not feel like a revolution, but real revolutions are the ones that nobody sees coming. And then taking these lessons into my own journey as a socialist, I'm often surrounded by strangers in rooms like today, in meetings, in conversation. But deep down, I know we are all linked together, not, not through just our collective exploitation under this system and our suffering, but our hope to make not just another world, but a socialist world and learning from what came before and engaging with each other. Today's episode highlighted the significance of the Russian Revolution, not only as a world historical event, but as something we can continue to learn valuable lessons from in our own historical moment. Revolutionary socialism did not start or end in 1917. It's an ongoing process that's always evolving in dialogue with the material conditions of the times. Our revolution will not look the same as the Russian Revolution of 1917. It won't look the same as the Haitian Revolution of the 1790s, and it won't look the same as the Egyptian Revolution of 2011. But the spirit of the revolution will be the same. Working class people rising up against their oppressors, saying enough is enough, and fighting for their liberation. The October Revolution may be our past, but the spirit and energy of the revolution is our future. This episode was recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. It was produced by Spencer Bridgman, Everett Kehu, and me, Josh Frame, with original music from Benjamin Billion. To read and listen to more from Spring, and to find out how to join the Spring Socialist Network, please go to springmag.ca.